When it comes to cricket, everyone knows about the greats. The legends, the household names, you know the ones. Players like Don Bradman, Viv Richard, Shane Warne, Imran Khan, Sachin Tendulkar, Jimmy Anderson and countless others. Individuals who've dominated the game and appeared numerous times at international level. Their stories and achievements are writ large across the history of the sport. But what about those players who've been picked just once? Players who achieved the ultimate of playing test cricket only to find they were never picked again. What about their stories? Well, this podcast is all about those stories as I speak with players to find out the hows and the whys, the regrets, the frustrations and the pride behind their all-too-brief careers at the highest level. I'm Brian Murgatroyd. Welcome to One Test Wonders. this episode, we speak with batsman Paul Parker. If I ask you to think about the 1981 Ashes series, what comes to mind? Ian Botham? Of course. Bob Willis? Almost certainly. Mike Brearley? Perhaps. But Paul Parker? Probably not. All the same, Paul, an attacking batsman and a thrilling fielder for Sussex and latterly Durham, a player good enough to score over 19,000 first-class runs and take part in two winning one-day finals at Lord's, made his test debut in the final match of that unforgettable 1981 series at the Oval. He'd set his heart on playing for England and this was his chance. And, as it turned out, it was his only chance. Let's hear Paul Parker's story of a momentous week in his life, one which had profound repercussions for his career. Paul, the first question, I suppose, was you were called up for the sixth and final test of the series that's become known as Botham's Ashes. How daunting, nerve-wracking and or exciting was it? It was lovely to be called up, but it was when the series was over, if you like. You know, England had won the series. It had been an amazing series. I'd had a, a, a wonderful season. Sussex had had a wonderful season. And I had been touted for playing for a, a, a number of matches. And eventually, when the call came, I was absolutely thrilled. And yes, I, I, it was a, a, a strange feeling. Uh, perhaps I wasn't as excited as I might have been, because uh, my thoughts were then on playing Australia for Sussex at Hove, I was the captain that day because John Barclay was taking a break because Sussex were in a very exciting campaign trying to win the county championship. Um, and I went into a side against Australia without Imran Khan, Garth Aruv, Jeff Arnold and John Barclay himself were all resting. And it was, you know, it was a bit strange you know, with the Tannoy announcing I was in the test match team because that's how it was announced on the to me anyway, that uh, Sunday morning. And uh, I was uh, due to play, uh, I was playing against Australia at that moment. I, I think I've got a picture of, you know, I've got a picture of me on the on, on the back of a, the Argus with a big smile on my face. And so that probably says it all. It's a funny one, that match you mentioned against the Australians at Hove, because it actually turned out, I suppose, in one sense to be, well, a bit of a lose-lose for you, didn't it? Because... You didn't get to play against Terry Alderman and Dennis Lilly, who were the front-line bowlers. And it would have been great if you could have seen those before the Test match. But also, they got a look at you. 
<laughs> it's a strange one. It? Yeah, my innings in uh, the Sussex versus Australia were a carbon copy of my innings in both of my innings in the Test match. It was odd. Um, I'd come off the top of my form, um, which I enjoyed for much of the season, and they were playing Rodney Hogg at the time, and Rodney Hogg was having trouble no balling. It was pretty poor light. Rodney Hogg's first over took about 15 minutes because he bowled about 21 deliveries, I think, the end of which I had nicked a ball to the keeper and was off, uh, walking off the pitch. And as I was walking off the pitch, all the other players were coming off for bad light. <laughs> so I, that was my first innings. And then I, I dabbled it to a second slip rather as I did in the test match. So very disappointing both times. But uh, lose-lose, possibly. <laughs> Clearly, you're, you'd actually been earmarked as one of the next generation of batsmen by the selectors for quite some time, hadn't you? There was Jim Love had played some one-day internationals at the start of the summer. Wayne Larkins was there or thereabouts. Uh, and you'd been selected for that TCCB 11 against the touring Sri Lankans in July. In that side was Larkins, Mike Gatting, John Embury, Paul Allett. So you were obviously on the fringes. Did that affect you at all? Did it affect you in a positive way? Because obviously you had such a good summer. I'd had some exposure to Test Match cricket at the Oval when Sunil Gavaskar in 1979 scored 221. I fielded all day because Geoffrey Boycott was off the field and I was a sort of call-in 12th man. And playing in that match, uh, the TCCB game against Sri Lanka, you did feel as though you were in in the selector's eyes, definitely. And I don't remember my batting in that match at all. I do remember John Barkley giving a team talk before going out fielding and then walking into the uh, the airing cupboard instead of going out of the door down the field from the dressing room, which everyone thought was very funny because he was the captain that day. I also remember in the field, John Barkley set the Sri Lankans a very generous declaration. And then tempted John Embury to throw the ball up to tempt the Sri Lankans to go in. John Embury went for quite a lot of runs. And then when John Barkley bowled, he had to bowl flat. And John Embury and John Barkley had this very funny uh, conversation when um, Embury said, well, why, why, why are you having to, uh, why did I have to throw the ball up to entice them to hit me? And then uh, anyway, a chap called Julep Mendes, I think scored a lot of runs. But we were in the frame, certainly. And I did feel it at that stage. At the stage I played the test match, and that's you know, and previously when I played matches, I was just playing. And when you were in good form, you were in good form, and it was all very natural. I hadn't really perhaps worked out a method. When I was in good form, I played well, and I had to go through a massive change after my test match and two very poor seasons in county cricket to become a much better, tougher player. How closely had you been following the tests up to uh, your call-up? Because obviously you've been playing for Sussex in a very intense period with uh, the side going for the county championship. Were you able to follow the tests very much? We were very aware of what was going on, but we had our own battles. Yes, I mean, it was of massive interest and the fantastic achievements at um, Headingley, then Edgebaston, then Old Trafford, obviously captured everyone's everyone's imagination so yes we were in tune with all of that these days test team has days of preparation sometimes even weeks of preparation but in those days of course it was just one day 
Did you actually have a net? And if so, who did you face? Because I know the nets at the Oval at that time of year, down at the Vauxhall End, were notoriously modest, shall we say. <laughs> Do you know, I, I, I probably did have a bit of a hit. I more remember trying to catch very high um, uh, catches hit by Ian Botham. And as I managed to cling on to one of them, one of the other players, I think, just said, as a, a bit of bravado trying to take that one, i.e. don't bother, because Botham was having a bit of fun, seeing how high he could hit it. You would have gone up to London on the Wednesday, you had your practice, uh, and there would have been the Test Match dinner as well, uh, which was a, a well-established tradition. Do you remember anything about that, uh, who you would have sat next to, or was it a particularly welcoming occasion? I'm I'm going to say that it, it was okay. I mean, I, I don't push myself forward, and I was very much um, on the outside. Mike Brearley, I, I remember saying it was a sort of team meeting, so you know, just uh, play your own game, Paul, and you know, field as you field, and just feel part of this. So you know, I, I, I was I was given a welcome like that. But um, to be honest, I, you know, I I did feel very much on the outside throughout the process and that partly that was myself and partly was the way I batted but it wasn't uh, I don't think that was a, a feature of or a function of being made to feel out out of the side well the side itself of course included some of the biggest names in English cricket you've mentioned Mike Brearley Alan Knott Bob Willis Ian Botham Jeffrey Boycott all individuals who will be regarded as some of the best players ever in the history of the game for England what was it like for you as a what 25-year-old walking into a dressing room including those sorts of individuals? You really want to perform to feel part of the team. And yeah, I, was, I had to make my name, if you like, and, and I was there. Yes, it was quite daunting. I think the, if I'm honest, I think the atmosphere was definitely one, it's like an end-of-term feel. Uh, the job had been done. and. If you like, it was just another match for the most of them, So, I, um, but not for me. Absolutely. And, uh, of course, the biggest name that I mentioned, Ian Botham there, in the summer of his life, the summer of his career. What was it like walking into a dressing room with him at the height of his powers? Absolutely fine. He was a very you know, very personable man. As, a, as an opponent in county cricket up to that stage, I'd always rather fancied, you know, rather done rather well against Botham because as a bowler, he always bowled, pitched the ball up get to get it swing and you know Sussex had done rather well against Somerset in at county level so I, I wasn't uh, overawed in that sense but certainly his achievements spoke for themselves and I mean yeah he was just he was just one of the team. Were you told beforehand where you'd be batting given a brief of what was expected of you told anything about the opposition bowlers or, uh, or was it no. a, again a little bit more different to the way it is today? <laughs> I think Probably, you, you've hit the nail on the head, latter, the different from today. No, there is very interesting, you should say, that the one thing I do remember, and here I was my own worst enemy, I batted at four all year for Sussex, all season for Sussex, and the day before the match at the, at the Nets, I remember Mike Gatting coming up to me and saying, Paul, you you were... Yeah, you're down at four. Do you mind if I, I go four and you go five? And I should have said, look, I'm at four. I'd like to go at four. I said, no, Mike, that's fine. Don't worry. I, I didn't stand up for myself. 
Um, I didn't I didn't look on it as anything other than well, like, why don't we? What's what's the difference between four and five? Incredible, really, because as you say, you'd batted at four all season for Sussex, and actually in that TCCB eleven, I think you'd batted ahead of Mike Gatting. Again, you'd batted at four in that game as well. So. Yeah, it, it's interesting that it comes down to the individual players to decide that rather than the captain as well. I was happy with I think obviously Mike Braley played with, um, well, Mike Braley was Gatting's captain. Clearly he was happy with it. And uh, roll the camera back. And had I gone in at four, I would have been in much earlier in both innings, which probably would have suited my temperament, especially as waiting to go into bat is one of the most enervating experiences of sport, I think. Absolutely. Well, the, the other thing is, of course, uh, particularly in the first innings, you wouldn't have gone in facing the second new ball. I didn't really think about that, but um, there was a long wait during that day, certainly, with pads on. And eventually, my memory um, was that Mike really very kindly said, oh, Paul, you've been with those pads on for such a long time. Don't worry, I'll, uh, I'll go in for you. And uh, <laughs> history shows that I think Mike Gatting got out. Mike Brearley got out for naught. Paul Parker got out for naught. <laughs> yes, we'll come to that in a little bit more detail later. But in the meantime, just looking towards the start of the match, do you remember when you were issued with your kit and your England cap? Oh, gosh, do you know? It might have been the night before. I've still got upstairs some unopened England shirts because I was given, I think you were given three short sleeve shirts and three long sleeve shirts. And the quality of them is pretty poor, actually. <laughs> But I think I've still got some in, in unopened in a packet upstairs. That's amazing. Uh, when you were issued with your kit, of course, they, in those days, there were no cap presentation ceremonies or anything like that. How did you sleep the night before? Were you a good sleeper uh, ahead of big games? No, I wasn't a very good sleeper, to be honest. And I think I was, yes, I had a, a broken night's sleep, one might say. And what about the, the pressure of having relatives or, or, or the pleasure of having relatives uh, there to see you play? How easy or difficult was it to sort out tickets for them? I know Mike Brealy in his book, Phoenix from the Ashes, says your dad was speaking to Jim Laker on the first morning before play. <laughs> yeah, I've got quite a few siblings. My, my, all my brothers came to the test match and um, I've, I've found a picture on the evening standard of my dad and my three brothers on the first day watching the match in the crowd, uh, which is a lovely memory. I don't think the tickets pre- presented a problem at all uh, you know, for leaving um, complimentary tickets for them. Funnily enough, my, my little sister, she was 17 at the time, was at a music festival in Oldborough. She's quite a good musician. And uh, Hilary Jane had tried to avoid uh, jinxing my innings by on the Saturday going into the local town. And when she got off the bus, there was one of those old-fashioned television shops, Rediffusion Shop, I think, and every screen had the test match on and every screen had showed my dismissal as she got off the bus. <laughs> <laughs> well, she wouldn't forget that and obviously she's made sure you don't, you don't either. <laughs> well, I only found that out the other day when I mentioned that I'd been asked to, sort of, well, to think about this particular thing. So... Uh, and uh, that was an interesting uh, memory of hers, which uh, I, I share. <laughs> On that first morning uh, of your test match, how daunting was it? Uh, were, you, were you a nervous sort or did you take those sorts of big moments in your stride? I think getting nervous before matches is part and parcel of, of playing sport. Um, I think you build yourself up through those nerves. And I, 
And yes, I would have been nervous. And I was rather pleased, I think, that we were fielding first so I could get the atmosphere and, if you like, not have to face that particular uh, fear of any batsman of, of going out and, and, and getting off the mark, if you like. Did it surprise you that Mike Brealey opted to bowl first? Because it it was a pretty good surface, wasn't it? To be honest, I didn't even think about it. I took it um, and, I, as I say, I was rather relieved. Uh, oh, yes, we're in the field. OK, we can get into this match. And beforehand, had you been asked where you'd prefer to field or was it just a given that you'd be patrolling the covers, given that that was your specialist position? Well, it's interesting because David Gower had been dropped for the match and he was a brilliant fielder and he fielded in the covers. And it, you know, fielding was, you know, unfortunately, I think I was better known for my fielding than my batting. So I almost just walked to it. I think I, you know, it was, that's where I fielded. <laughs> and on that first day, just uh, looking at footage of you uh, out in the field, you can be seen wearing your cap. Were you a cap person or was it simply a matter of pride at having achieved that place in the test team that made you wear it? <laughs> Not at all. No, I always wore a cap. No, um, it was it was just a no-brainer, especially on sunny days. You see better and you don't have to squint. And it, I have always worn a, a cap in, on the field. And how did you find that first day in the field? Uh, as you've mentioned already, it was a dead rubber match, but... Was the intensity as you expected it to be? Was there, was there any chat in the field? Not being part of the slip cordon and only rarely being close in during those fielding sessions, not really. I, I, I was just doing, doing my bit, trying to stay, stay awake alert. And I think the atmosphere was pretty flat, if I'm honest. Yeah, that was certainly the impression I got. I remember watching at the time on television that uh, it didn't have that intensity of the three previous test matches, which, of course, had been such incredible uh, occasions with England wins. But how did you feel at the end of the first day coming off? There were only four wickets taken in the day. It was, well, it was a a bit of a run-of-the-mill day, really. But were you exhausted, uh, either mentally, physically, or or both? I'm just going to say I'm probably tired at the end of a day's fielding when you've been out on the <laughs> when you've been out on the field all day and not much has happened in any of the uh, test matches I've fielded in or or even in that one I hardly had to do anything memorable I didn't take a catch it was like a day at the office if you like and no I I can't remember feeling overtired or overexerted and was probably pleased that we weren't batting the next morning. And so I could perhaps get back onto the field and relax still in that sense. And at the end of a day's play during the test match, how did how did you tend to unwind? Uh, you mentioned your brothers and your father were at the match on day one. Did you, did you catch up with them after play? No, I don't think I did, actually. I think I've got a memory. And again, my so a lot of this has faded. I've all, I, maybe I've blotted it out. Brian, I don't know. But uh, I think I've got a memory. On one of the evenings, I actually had, and this is ironic, I had a a meal with somebody who wanted me to sign up on a contract. And I think there was another player there. I can't remember who it was. That other player went on to be very famous and I didn't. I think we both signed the same contract. (laughs) So uh, there's irony there, I think, for me. Was it any sort of overture towards uh, the Rebel Tour that happened uh, at the back end of that winter, of course? Was there any chat around that during the Test match? No, I think there was more chat about India. That's that's when I felt very out of it, if you like, because I couldn't uh, join in any uh, conversation with any meaning at that stage. 
Day two came around and and you started off on day two actually fielding at silly point to Bob Willis. Was there any chat between you and and Mike Gatting across the batsman? I know that's a a tactic that's used sometimes, people chatting across the pitch uh, to each other, but also in the hearing of a batsman just to maybe plant some seeds of doubt in his mind. No, I think my cynicism came later in my... um professional career Brian <laughs> I wouldn't have done that at that stage <laughs> were you much of a talker on the pitch as a rule of thumb no I think um especially as a batter I didn't say anything to the bowler because any the next ball could get you out and then they would be laughing so you just keep your counsel no not at all but of course you got the opportunity on that second day to spend a long time watching Alan Border bat as he made an unbeaten century how impressed were you with him I'd come across Alan Border before, actually. I think Cambridge University played uh, bizarrely what wasn't a first-class fixture, considering they were like a test team that Derek Robbins had put against the university at uh, Eastbourne. And uh, Border had scored a magnificent 159. I'm not saying that the Cambridge University bowling attack was like the England one. But, uh, no, he he struck me as a very fantastic player, also as a very... A uh, strong man as well in personality. So he got 100. Australia made 352. Then Wayne Larkins, Jeff Boycott, Chris Tavery responded, albeit very slowly. England reached 100 for one by the close of play on that second day. Now, watching highlights of that second day, Jim Laker, towards the end of the day on commentary, says you were listed to go in at number four. Was that not going to happen because of your conversation with Mike Gatting on on the day before the the, the uh, test match? So you wouldn't have had your pads on, or, or did you? In my mind, I was always in at five after that conversation, and I think Brearley had concurred. Clearly, no one had told the uh, the printers at the scorecards. So uh, <laughs> I was I was always coming in at five, and I was waiting for quite a long time with my pads on, watching the partnership that was developing. Yes, day three. Obviously, there was a long partnership between Mike Gatting and uh, and Jeff Boycott, and they they took the score from when Chris Tavery was out almost to two hundred and fifty. In fact, for the loss of just those uh, th- those couple of wickets, what were your feelings as uh, as Jeff Boycott and Mike Gatting made batting look relatively straightforward? I guess on that third day, you know, you go through varying emotions when you're watching when you're next in. I think at the start of when you're you're next in. You, you you think okay. At any moment, I'll be in. Get up. You move around. You can. You practice your you know, your shots. But then you then as things go on, you you settle down. You try not to uh, play every shot. But it was very difficult on that particular day. Just sitting there, waiting, watching. You, you you're never comfortable going into bat. You're you're next into bat. Oh, well, I was never comfortable. I, I I still had to watch. I couldn't go away and sit down. Later on, I I learned it was quite a good idea to to do crosswords or something, you know, so you could keep your you know, keep your brain active but still watch. But uh, it was a that's a, a very tense time. So you're actually by the time you you got to go in at number six after Mike Brearley, who'd given you a, a little bit of a break. So you were actually quite mentally tired when you made it to the crease. I would say very yes. How did you reflect on having to bat at number six? Had you ever batted at number six before? I, I didn't give it any thought, to be honest. You, know, when you, you when you go out, it doesn't matter if you're one or eleven going out to bat. Um, it's the same. You've got to approach it the same. So it, it didn't didn't pass through my mind. And when you got to the middle, did the Australians have much to say? I can't remember anything, to be honest. 
about that first deliver. I can't remember taking guard. <laughs> and I can remember my dismissal ball on my second delivery. And I don't think there was any chat, no. And did Jeff Boycott have anything to say in the brief time that you were in the middle? Not that I remember. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> that ball you were out to, your second ball, caught in the slips, just feeling for a delivery outside off stump. It's a very common dismissal for batsmen new to the crease, of course. How do you reflect on that dismissal now? It's only very, very recently that I looked at any footage of that. And, and I've, I looked at myself batting for the first time in 40 years. And I remember exactly how it felt. And I looked at my, the way my shoulders were. I was very taut at the top of my body. A half movement, a nervous shove, a push at the ball. Terry Alderman's great strength was he bowled, he made you play. And I learned this later on when he played for Kent. And I managed to score some runs against him. But he, his, his great skill was just putting it straight down the channel, uh, just outside off stump, a little bit of movement away. And... I, my, my feet didn't move, they're a bit leaden. So, yeah, it's all very disappointing, actually. <laughs> how many how many times have you played that ball since, in your mind? I think, well, yes, at the time, loads, clearly. But I think, you, know, you I, I, I exorcised the ghost in county cricket when, as I say, Sussex played Kent and uh, Alderman was playing for Kent. Um, and scoring runs against him, you, you realise, actually, you know, he wasn't a world beater as such, but on that particular day I played in 1981, he had my measure anyway, twice. <laughs> Did you reflect on the fact that it was your misfortune to go in just as the second new ball had been taken as well? Or was that just one of those things? Just one of those things. I think other people have made that, um, uh, have observed that for me, but no, I've, I've not thought about that. And what was your feeling as you made your way off the ground? You'd waited almost three days to have a bat, and then it's all, all finished in two, <laughs> two balls. Oh, gosh. So walking off the field, what I had in mind, honestly, and it sounds, sounds comic now, Kerry Packer had uh, revolutionised the televising of cricket you know, in the, in the late 70s with his World Series cricket, coloured colored clothing and all that, but he also introduced some graphics and one of the graphics that he had introduced it on his channel nine cricket uh, shows was a little yellow duck weeping tears walking along from the bottom as, as the batsman who'd got naught uh, walked out. And so as I was walking out, I had visions of this little yellow duck <laughs> crying his tears as I was walking off. So I was, I was pretty miserable. I have to say, um, not, I'm not a bat thrower, no. Your bat is too valuable. I might throw a glove, definitely. I was more volatile. Yes, I was quite volatile when I got out, but not, not in the England dressing room at all. I was too meek and uh, too humbled. Did anyone say anything to you afterwards in the dressing room, or was it the usual form of if a batsman's failed, they're generally left alone for a little while just to, just to calm down? Uh, I think that, you, yes, leave them alone, let them calm down. Definitely. And I, I felt unbelievably disappointed, you know, let myself down. Had I let my family down? No, I'd let myself down. You, I, I was better than that, but I was out. And that's, that's the batsman's lot. 
So, of course, that's the third day. And at the end of the third day, there was a rest day. Rest days don't happen, of course, in test matches now, but uh, they did back then. And uh, I think you spent your rest day in quite an unusual way, didn't you? (laughs) Well, yeah, you make plans. My son was due to be christened uh, on the Sunday of the test match uh, that I played in. And I had to get permission to go back home. Well, I stayed at my parents' house at, at Horsham because my son was being, my son James was being christened uh, at a, a local church. And we had a little bit of a celebration and got permission to go back. My son was christened beautifully and we had uh, friends and family around to the lovely cottage garden that my parents had. And I was had to endure a lot of ribbing from friends and family. <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't the elephant in the room then. It wasn't nobody talk about uh, the test match. <laughs> By the sound of it, everyone did. Oh gosh, they did a bit. I mean, clearly J- Jamie was the star of the show, being the christened son. But uh, no, I, there was a, a, a quite a bit of banter, and especially when my brother Rupert introduced a game in the garden called Wibbly Wobbly. And I just explained this. A cricket stump was involved and two two cricket stumps. And you put your head on the cricket stump. You ran around this about 10 times as quickly as you could. And then you had to go and try and um, run a relay race around a, a given point. And of course, having run around a, a cricket stump, um, you tend to be rather giddy and you stagger all over the place. And um, one of my friends said, your batting was rather like that yesterday, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like perfect preparation for the last two days of a test match as well. Well, it was good. (laughs) Honestly, I felt felt relieved to to come away from, I do remember feeling a great sense of relief coming away from the the, the test match arena, you know, the the hotel. Um, And... I also remember uh, on that score wanting to know exactly what was happening with Sussex, where I obviously felt much more comfortable. And I I had a chat with John Barclay. I think Sussex were playing at Bournemouth at the time. And Sussex played two matches during the Test match and won both. So I I think I was looking for releases, if you like, during that, uh, that time. It was a tense time. And then day four came along, the Monday, and the match swung decisively to Australia. And that was partly, I guess, due to an ailing England attack. Only four bowlers had been picked, four frontline bowlers for the Test match. And Ian Botham and Bob Willis were both injured. Botham managed to keep bowling. How aware were you in the dressing room of of how much that duo was struggling? I wasn't aware at all, to be honest. So as I said, I've, I've I've blanked a lot of of it out and I've tried to recall it and I and I and I can't and I don't know maybe that's you know shows perhaps how the whole thing revolved around how I was going to perform batting because that's what I do remember. Were you surprised that Australia didn't declare on the fourth evening or, or were you expecting them to allow Dirk Wellham to reach his hundred? It seemed to go against the grain of the gritty Australian that uh, they would be sentimental enough to allow him to get um <laughs> to get his hundred if you like but uh I didn't think about it too much. I do remember feeling slightly jealous of Dirk Wellham when Geoffrey Boycott dropped him on 99. <laughs> I think it was a bit of a sitter at mid-on. But, um, yeah, I thought, well, I wish I'd had that bit of luck. 
but uh, that's that was just uh, you know, sour grapes probably <laughs> did you actually take any comfort from the way Dirk Wellham played on his debut thinking well if he can do it on his debut maybe uh, in the second innings there's uh, there's an opportunity for me as well uh, I think you could probably call it more professional envy I wish <laughs> And after that fourth day, how were you feeling mentally and physically? You mentioned already about the fact that you'd found the rest day was a, was a great release to get away from that pressure cooker environment. I think by then, yeah, I, you were back in the pressure cooker environment. I knew uh, you know, I had the pressure of scoring the dreaded pair the next day. Literally all of my thoughts were perhaps focused on that. It's uh, hard to think that one should just think about something so small, but it was very large at the time. And presumably, therefore, uh, not a great night's sleep before the final day. Oh, no, I, I, I think that was right. My uh, sleep patterns weren't great. On that final day, was there any sort of team plan or instruction of how to go about playing, or was it left to each individual to, to play their natural way? 383 was the, the target on that last day, which was... I guess fairly daunting in a test match situation, but something that sides might might have chased on a fairly regular basis in county cricket. Yes, um, um, having fielded on that day that India scored nearly four hundred to or four hundred, they scored four thirty, uh, chasing England's total in nineteen seventy nine. It was always possible, but I, I don't think there was the will to. I honestly probably don't think there was the collective will to actually, well, you know, we can do this. And there wasn't the need to do it. I mean, people were talking about the the tour to India. People were signing the the rafts of autographed bats that still hadn't been signed. It was, I think we just, it was each man to have each man for himself. You know, let's, let's bat the day through, see where we get to. And had you had you managed to adjust your your viewing habits uh, ahead of your time at the crease for the second innings? Uh, were you on the balcony? Did you prefer to watch in the dressing room on television? Perhaps were you able to switch off a little bit more, or was just that pressure of the potential peer just eating into you? Oh yes, uh, very much the latter there, Brian. Uh, and again, I, I think I had to wait again quite a while, um, not as long as the first day. There was a bit of a partnership just before I, I got in. So I wasn't out there and re- releasing those nerves. Yeah, you're right. There was a bit of a partnership with with Mike Gatting and, and Wayne Larkins either side of lunch. And then uh, th- there was a dismissal soon after the interval with Dennis Lilly with his tail up. And uh, off you went in at number five. Were you nervous? Do you remember that walk to the crease? <laughs> I... I can't remember the walk to the crease. And as I say, I've only very recently in the last few days looked at the footage from 40 years ago and I, I, I get to the crease. And so I, I do remember this very well. Dennis Lilly was coming in and as the bowler is coming in, uh, I, I was just doing my level best. OK, head still, watch the ball, left elbow up. And I knew all of that. And yet all I could remember See, I could see Dennis Lilly just, I noticed his flipping cross. He always used to wear that um, gold necklace thing. And I noticed that as he was running in, so I can't have been watching the ball. And as he delivered this ball, I, I, I thought I'd got into position. I thought I got back to play it, and it was on to me. And it, I nicked it. It went just past my leg stump. And I had a big smile. Well, to my inside, I had a massive smile as I jogged up the wicket. I thought, I'm off the mark. Fantastic. 
I suppose, I think Dennis Lilly might have said something. Anyway, I was off the pair. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> that first scoring shot, you run down, you run down the pitch past Dennis. Yeah, that, that feeling of exhilaration must have been incredible. Wow, yeah. Off the pair. What, what was I worried about? <laughs> and then after that, I cannot remember much about my innings. Do you know? I mean, I, I was there for a long time. 55 minutes, I think, or nearly an hour. And uh, I just couldn't get into any sort of rhythm. A batsman has rhythm, just like a bowler has rhythm. And it was a situation I'd been used to in lots in my career. Got a bat through a day. And I mean, early in my career, the, the very best score I ever scored was batting through the day against Essex at Cambridge University. And all I thought of, I've got to be here at the end. And that was the same thing in the test match. And yet I couldn't put into practice what I know. Well, you know, replay what I'd played numerous times in the past. Had you actually got a pair at that stage in your first-class career? Did you ever get one? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, having mentioned my best ever innings at Cambridge uh, against Essex, I got a couple of... I got a double hundred. The very next match, I got a pair against Kent, uh, Derek Underwood, twice. So, yes, I had. <laughs> Well, isn't that incredible? Uh, you you mentioned Derek Underwood there because, of course, when you were batting, Ray Bright, another left arm spinner, was bowling, and he was bowling over the wicket into the into the footmarks outside uh, your leg stump. So, I guess that would have been another reason why it would have been very difficult as a batsman to get into any sort of rhythm when you were at the crease. It's very kind of you to to remind me of that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it was a, it, it, clearly there would be a fifth day of the Test match would have been uh, scuff marks from the bowlers, follow through. I couldn't get into any sort of batting rhythm. And when the dismissal finally came, it was a carbon copy of the first, nearly a carbon copy of my delivery and dismissal in the first innings. Well, you batted for quite some time with first Mike Gatting and then Mike Brealey. Were, were they able to offer you any, any sort of sucker in the middle? Any, any guidance? I think batting is a very lonely thing. You're doing it yourself. So um, I probably wouldn't have asked. I think there would be encouraging words or, you know, as you would expect. But, you know, they, they can't tell you how to play. And my batting performance that day was just very much down to me. And it just didn't work. Well, Mike Brearley had and still has a reputation as a great man manager, a people person, a great captain. Did you see any evidence of that during the match? What was he like with you? He was perfectly civil. It's interesting. You know, Mike Brearley is clearly and rightly you know, down in cricket folklore in, in England and in world cricket. For me as a young player coming up at Sussex, playing against Middlesex, when Middlesex were a dominant force, Brearley was the captain, you always have a sort of rather different perspective on uh, the character. So um, I've got one memory of Mike Brearley. Gian Mendes and I, uh, for Sussex in the quarterfinal, the Benson and Hedges were young tyros, tilting at the uh, Middlesex windmill that we were chasing runs. And at one stage, Wayne Daniel bowled a ball and one of us dropped it just down in front of us. We said no to the run. Then everyone stopped in the field. And then we said yes, and we stole a sitting single. And at that moment, I remember Mike Brearley, captain, standing at square leg. He took off his rather odd sun hat he was wearing and threw it on the ground and jumped on it. And I remember that as an image of Mike Brearley, the cat. He got so frustrated that we were, we made fun of him, if you like. But then um, within that match, I can't remember feeling that I'm in the presence of, of genius here or, or anything like that. It was, it, it was just 
he was the captain of this incredible side and I was trying to break into it but unfortunately I didn't and I, I, I do feel on the outside I have to say. You hit a couple of fours in your innings the one of course was the inside edge to get off the mark of Dennis <laughs> Lilly. Do you actually remember the other one? I wish I did. I'm going to say it must might have been off the back foot through the covers but I haven't a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me where it was because I, I looked on the highlights that, you, that I that uh, that I said I've only very recently looked and it's not shown on the highlights so it can't have been a very good shot. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to try and track it down somehow. But of course ev- eventually Dennis Lilly who was bowling when when you first came to the crease was rested. Did you even inadvertently relax a little? Uh, and if so, was that your downfall? Because he bowled beautifully in that match, didn't he? I think he got 11 wickets in total. When you've been there and the main bowler has come off as a batter, you, it's a victory. And it's possible that I did, but I don't I don't remember thinking, oh, great, Dennis is off. We, we've got the other ones. You know, they're all test bowlers. But it, it's possible, but I can't remember thinking specifically, yes, no, you know, you know, now we can move forward. And what was your feeling when you were dismissed? Uh, just despondency. And, uh, you know, that was it. You know, I've, uh, I- I'd had the same feeling when I was playing for Sussex. It was, the, you know, as if it was a carbon copy of my Sussex innings against Australia at Hove the week before. And, you know, there's nothing you can do. A batsman can do nothing. Just get off the field and recoup. That, that was that. And it still brings feelings of disappointment as we talk now. Did you think the test was lost when, when you and then Ian Botham got out in, in quick succession? I could have done, but I don't think I was really... I was think I was so self-absorbed with disappointment, I didn't really think about it. So what were you feeling in the dressing room? Anger? Frustration? Reasonably calm? No, no not calm. No, I think disappointment mostly. Disappointment that knew. I've, I've had my chance and I, I would certainly probably not be on the... Uh, well, you can't say on the boat to India, but on the flight to India. So, And as the match ran on then, obviously Mike Brealy, Alan Knott, John Embry, they were fighting for a draw. Were you nervous watching that? Or you've mentioned already, because it was your test debut, because you were in a, a dressing room full of established players, you felt a little bit on the outside. Were you nervous or, or were you a little bit detached from, from that uh, end of the match? I think detached is a good way of putting it. As I say, I... I'm honest, I probably couldn't wait to, to pack my bags and get out of there. Of all the grounds in England, I never enjoyed playing at the Oval. And this had just, this had just cemented that feeling, probably for good. <laughs> what was your feeling at the end of the match? Were you, uh, and indeed reflecting on it now, was there satisfaction that uh, you'd been involved in a terrific match and, and part of a terrific series? Frustration, you couldn't contribute more? Relief, it was all over? Or a mixture of all that? A mixture of all that, ever since, it's been amazing that I was part of that. So the benefit of hindsight, I have just had, you know, you think, crikey, I'm, I'm there. I mean, there was a dinner. MCC held a dinner, the 30 years on from the Botham Ashes. I was invited. How amazing was that? I think, crikey, well, I was part of it. But um, at the same time, I'd like to have been so much more a part of it. And did anyone at the end of the match, selectors or, or teammates, say anything to you? If, if they did, I can't remember, to be honest. As I say, it was, it was all job done for them. As I say, they knew it was, it was thing. They were, I think a lot of them had packed their bags anyway by the time the game was over. You know, 
<laughs> well, of course, as you, you've mentioned that the county cricket wheel kept on turning and there were matches to be played the following day. But in in terms of the end of the match, was there a post-match drink in the dressing room or did players simply drift off and go their separate ways? Or did you get a chance to go into the Australian dressing room? I think there was a bit of mingling, if I'm honest, because I think I got some autographs and... You always had a, an after-match drink, if you like. You you, you had a drink you know, brought into the dressing room, you, a drink of your choice, if you like. That was as a feature of county cricket as well. But I think there was some, yes. And and as I say, I, I probably felt most out of it at that stage because these you know the, the the people who'd fought their six test matches had a lot to say to each other, and I had nothing to contribute. So I think that's probably you know. You know very much on the outside of the circle. You mentioned uh, collecting some uh, some autographs. Was that a slightly self-conscious thing to do, or, or were you able to do that reasonably calmly? Self-consciously, I think at that stage, embarrassedly, uh, probably. I do remember I had a one of my best ever bats was the bat I got the runs with um, at Cambridge. Had split, unusually, it didn't split down the grain, it had split across the middle. It was a grey nickels scoop. And I had that signed by England and Australia. Um, and I auctioned that for a charity event oh, about 15 years ago. Did you get any other souvenirs from uh, from the Test match? I did get a stump. I don't know how it came to me, but I got a stump. And I got that signed. But the sort of the, the glaze on the... On the the circular wood isn't the easiest thing to sign on, and all the all, nearly all of the signatures are illegible now, which is a bit of a shame. <laughs> Still a great thing to have. That's fantastic. Um, I think it's up. In, I think it's up in the attic, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> along along with uh, along with your unopened England shirts. Yes. Yeah. But I, I think you know, there's so much in the attic. I don't know where it is. So you returned to Sussex for a match the following day in the county championship against Hampshire. How, how were you feeling? I, you know, I looked at that um, in Wisden, and I think I'm caught Parks, Bold, Tremlett or something for naught, and we won the game, I think. But anyway, I, I, I can't remember it, to be honest. Probably mentally drained. The England and the county setups were very integrated in that. You know, um, and you know, perhaps, perhaps it's much better now that things have uh, split off and you've got central contracted players and... But it uh, certainly was it was it was a tough call, especially for fast bowlers. I can always remember when I first started playing for Sussex, John Snow coming back from a five day test match and being picked to play in or being in the Sussex team. He was so tired and hardly was able to get to the crease the next day. I knew what it was like for batsmen, but not for bowlers. Crikey, they they had it much worse. So there we are, the end of the season. You'd scored over fourteen hundred first class runs at an average of forty five, even allowing for a slight tail off at the end of the season did you think you'd be selected for the India tour I'll put it this way if I hadn't played the test match I might have been selected and I think just by playing in the test match and not performing I think just put the nail in the coffin for the tour for that winter for me so the season ended on a on a damp note for that and that that leads into lots of other things to do with the whole thing to do with professional cricket about you know jobs in the winter and you set your heart. You you play cricket to play for England. I I managed it. I've got it there. I've done it. But well, you know, you you're just that just whets the appetite. You mentioned jobs in the winter. What did you end up doing that winter? Huh. Well, I went out to play for Waverley in Sydney 
it sounds romantic to go off and play in the Southern Hemisphere, but gosh, it wasn't. Um, I'd done it, it would be with the fourth winter I'd been abroad. And this time I had my son, 10 months old, and my wife, we went. And it was frankly miserable. You didn't make money playing grade cricket. We, we scrimped and saved. And I hadn't really thought about the winter employment much. And it's interesting now to note that just in those days, county contracts ended at September and there was no pay between September and April. So you had to find yourself jobs. And so I had the choice of going to India. I didn't have that choice. So it was taken away from me. Or if I hadn't gone out to Australia, initially going, going, going on the dole at that stage because I'd made no plans. And so I had to arrange something very quickly and through the offices of Tony Gregg, who lived in Australia, managed to get this uh, playing and coaching uh, situation at Waverley. But uh, it was it was a tricky one. And then I, I got a call during the early part of 1982 from Tony Gregg again to say, would you want to go and join the Rebel Tour in South Africa? And what were you torn at all? Because, uh, as you'd said, you'd had a difficult winter this was uh, a decent amount of money that would have been offered. But uh, on the other side of the coin, there was the, the carrot, I guess, of playing for England again. It would have been a difficult d- decision for someone with a young family, I suppose. It was a hugely difficult decision. And uh, I just played for England. I thought I'd be playing again. People going to South Africa were banned for three years from playing international cricket. I needed the money that would have been very that would have solved financial worries for a couple of years. And yet I, I didn't go. My father also, I didn't ask him, but he had been thrown out of Rhodesia by the Smith government. Uh, my father was of liberal persuasion. He was a journalist there. And he'd been thrown out for opposing the Smith government, wanting to control the press. And so for a number of reasons, uh, I didn't go. Mostly that I didn't want to queer my pitch for playing for England again. It's incredible to look back now because it must have been so frustrating for you because probably the two of the leanest years you ever had with the bat then were in 1982 and 1983 when a whole host of players were unavailable because of that rebel tour and they were potentially batting spots up for grabs. Was it the thought of getting back into the England team that distracted you in those two years? Was there a hangover? Brian, not at all. The reality is that I... I had to learn how to bat again, but I only it took me two years to realise that. It took me those two awful seasons when my contract was nearly not renewed and I was dropped to the Sussex second team and I had to rebuild a way of playing and I had to work it out myself and it was a very poor time. So me not playing again for England is down to the fact that I had rubbish seasons in 82, 83 you've got to get in on form and my form went off completely and I just knew that if I had to um, if I was going to play cricket I had to be able to play fast bowling well and so my method of getting back into playing properly was I just wanted uh, to learn to play fast bowling well had I been picked at any stage had I been picked after playing the Gillette Cup final had I been picked after scoring 100 against India for MCC in 1979 you wouldn't have thought about it. You'd have gone in. You, know, you, you, you just don't think about. You just don't think about it. You know, young, youthful, fearless. You know, you're on form. Go and get them. Anyway, I had to rebuild my career, and I'd said to myself, if I'm going to do this, I've got to learn to play fast bowling properly. And so I got my brother-in-law, who was living with us at the time, 18, and 
there was a mad artist called Simon Packard with very bright blue eyes and a big black beard who we found at the indoor nets at home at about nine o'clock. And I would go down at nine o'clock in the evening all through the winter of 1983. And without a helmet, I just said to to Jack, my brother, brother brother-in-law, I want you to throw the ball as fast as you can at me. I want you to try and hit me. I want you to try and hit me on the head. You don't have to tell me where you're going to throw it. And Simon Packard was a, a, a fast bowler monkey. He came in and bowled as well. And week after week, night after night, I would go down for about an hour and learn to play. And what I just taught myself was you've got to be head still at the crease as the ball is delivered. If you move at all, you're shot when the, when the ball's quick and you move after you pick up the line of the ball afterwards. And I'd been toppling over to the to the offside. And if your head moves because it's the heaviest part of your body, then your body follows. So if you topple over to the offside with your head. So anyway, I worked on this and I worked on this and I just got a method which worked for me and no helmet at any stage. I wasn't hit once with the ball whizzing past my nose. Um, and I also asked him to, to throw from about 15 yards, not from uh, 22 yards. So it was a long process. And I, the following season, 1984, I had the best ever season I'd ever had. And if disappointment was rampant in 1981, in 1984, disappointment and more yeah, when I wasn't selected to go to India because I, I fully thought I'd earned the right. But the England middle order was fantastically strong at that stage. Gower, Gatting, Lamb, it was very difficult to break back into. Absolutely. That 1984 summer that you mentioned, you got almost 1,700 runs, uh, an average of 47, 600, 650s, an outstanding, an outstanding season. Now, uh, what I was going to ask you was, when you made your test debut, you were 25. From what you've said, you were nowhere near the finished article as a batsman at that stage. When were you the finished article as a batsman? I would say that in 1984, throughout that season and beyond, not for every season, but 1984 in particular, I would have been able to manage the triumphs and disasters on any stage at, uh, on the cricket field because I I had, had a method and it, it worked for me. Did you think there was a point in 1984 when you were close to getting a recall obviously they went through a few batsmen that summer Paul Terry had his arm broken Andy Lloyd was hit on the head so there, there was quite a churn of uh, of batsmen in that summer against uh, the West Indies and then a test match against Sri Lanka did you ever feel close did anyone give you an inclination or an intimation that you were that you were uh, you, you were close to a recall no but I think I was most disappointed when I knew that the selectors had come down to watch the match against Nottingham and I scored 100 uh, later on in the summer. I knew there was the test match coming up against Sri Lanka and I actually got my highest score for Sussex against them. I got 180 against uh, Sri Lanka at Hove. Uh, And I don't think I could have played any better than I'd played that season. I didn't really think about the West Indies playing test match cricket in in England at that stage. I, I, I was just... Absolutely thrilled to be back on terms. I mean, you asked me the question about, you know, were you a tough player? I was a much tougher player in 1984. I've become a much more selfish person. I'm, I've become a much nastier person. You have to look after yourself. And I made some sacrifices, lots of them to to just prove it to myself and 
to my doubters. But my main aim was to get on a tour because then you're part of a smaller group, part of 17, 16, 17. You're not part of 180 professional cricketers vying for the same thing. Um, things have changed since. Obviously, you have the central contracts now. But um, yeah, I was a much tougher player then. And then at what point did you realise you weren't going to play for England again? When I retired in 93. Well, I, I'm, I'm being a little bit disingenuous. Probably when I joined Durham, I thought, you know what, this isn't going to happen now. But up to then, I still felt that I, I would have something to offer. And then, then you knew. And one year, I think the year, first year I was captain, either it was 88 or 89 when the West Indies were in England. There were about four or five captains of England in the same year. And I thought that if there'd been 17 test matches, I'd have got to go at least because they were changing captains very regularly for England <laughs> at that stage. <laughs> I mean, again, in 1986, you were part of the Sussex side that, that won what became the, uh, the NatWest Trophy. You got big runs in in the final against Lancashire at Lords, once again you put yourself in the in the shop window, didn't you? Yeah, there was such a strong England middle order. I got used to feeling a little bit disappointed at the end of seasons when I, you know, I think uh, eighty one, eighty four, eighty six, eighty eight. You know, you had in between there were some rubbish years, but uh, every now and then you felt you might have a go. I didn't play just to play county cricket. I wanted to play for England. I played for England, and once you have the taste, you you want to have that taste again. You mentioned your career finished uh, at Durham when they started their journey as a first-class county, and you played alongside Ian Botham. Did the two of you ever mention your test match in, in 1981? No, no, we didn't. But that was some two years. It was fantastic. It was an amazing um, adventure, and one I'm uh, eternally grateful to my wife for putting me in that way because I was being very despondent because Sussex had asked me to stand down as captain and uh, I, we were away for a few days and I was so miserable. She said, Paul, have you thought of ringing Durham? And I hadn't at all. So I rang Jeff Cook. I said, do you want a worn out, beaten up county, ex-county captain? Uh, and he said, Polly, I'll be lovely. Come along. <laughs> so... Uh, it was it was great. It was a wonderful two years, and yeah, it was basically a bunch of old crocs who, who played very well for some of the time. But then old bones and muscles started to break and creak, and uh, we we couldn't quite uh, maintain our great start that very uh, start in ninety two that we had. How do you feel now about your England career? Looking back, it's it's a long time ago. It's 40 years now. Are you frustrated or, or bitter not to get another chance or, or grateful that you played uh, one more test than well, virtually everyone else in the country? <laughs> oh, do you know, I mean, from this distance, yeah, I, I've, I'm so pleased I've managed to do it. I'm absolutely thrilled. As we've been discussing, there are lots of disappointments along the way, but do you know, one of the lo most lovely things that had happened to me since, um, and I think to most England cricketers, was Andrew Strauss in 2017 organised a dinner for anyone who'd played cricket for England, men and women, uh, test cricket for England. And there was a big dinner at Laws. I know the date, February the 21st, 2017, because my daughter was due to give twins the following day. We had to go up at four or five in the morning to look after the, the, their other little daughter. And I had to get back early from this dinner. But this dinner was amazing. Andrew Strauss had 
masterminded it. And I just went along, not knowing what to expect. And some wonderful speeches were given. Doug Insull was over the oldest England player at the time. And Andrew said, you know, whether you've played one test or a hundred, we've all felt the same desire, passion, worked as hard to achieve that. And just before I left to go and get the train back down, we were sitting, all the tables were different uh, generations, and I was sitting next to Liam Plunkett. And I don't know why I was sitting next to Liam Plunkett, but it became evident because in the middle of the table, there was a box. And at one particular moment, the young player was asked, Liam Plunkett in this case, to distribute around the table these amazing caps that have been struck, if you like, for this dinner. And I've got an England cap with my name on it and my number, 492. So I'm getting a bit emotional. <laughs> well, it's fantastic that you've got that cap. Uh, and Paul, you deserve it because you're the 492nd player to play for uh, England. That can never be taken away from you. I certainly wish I'd uh, had the opportunity to do what you've done. <laughs> Congratulations on playing for England and congratulations on a fantastic career. And thank you so much for taking the trouble to chat with me. It's been a a wonderful conversation. Well, thank you, Brian. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. How about the fact that Paul found out he'd been selected for England from the Sussex Public Address System? There was no call from a captain, coach or chairman of selectors with the good news in those days. Listening back to what Paul had to say, what strikes me is his frankness, his self-deprecating humour, some great anecdotes. The thought of that game of wibbly-wobbly at his son's christening on the rest day of the test, as well as his uh, recollection of watching Dennis Lilly's necklace rather than the ball as he batted to avoid a pair, a priceless, I think. And there's his frustration and annoyance at the inability to take his chance too. But there's also Paul's immense pride at his achievement of playing for his country. It's a great story. And there's plenty more where that came from here on One Test Wonders. So please subscribe, like and let others know all about this podcast if you can. And if you've got any feedback or comments, you can email murgersb at gmail.com. That's M-U-R-G-E-R-S-B at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Brian Murgatroyd. Thanks for listening.